fun with you and with each other. I thank you for your word and the power of it, its effectiveness, God, to bring about in us your desired end, that we would be brought into conformity with Christ and his life being manifest through us. I pray, God, that um, as you have raised up your body, the church, and as people are gathered all over this nation and this world, that your word would be proclaimed, that Christ would be exalted and that we would respond in faith, Lord, to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I was in um, Colorado, Estes Park, Colorado, this past week, and um, it's cold up there. Um, it's amazing to have a Bible school in places like that. And um, every, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time I go to one of the Torchbearer Bible schools to teach, they have me teach First Kings. So I've been doing that for a long time, and I suppose by this time I've gone through First Kings over a hundred times. Um, and there's one part that, that, in a sense, relates to the church, um, you know, all scripture is profitable, we understand that, and there's application from all of it. The church is not in the Old Testament, but we're at this point here in Acts chapter 2 where the church is being birthed. And for the first time, we have um, all those who have placed their faith in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and God is doing a powerful and new work in their lives as we've just read. Though the church was not in the Old Testament, there was a similar thing that had happened in Israel when God um, poured out his spirit on, on Solomon and on the temple, and people were coming from all over the world to see and understand what was going on in Israel. And one person of the thousands that came was the queen of the south. We call her the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament, probably from modern-day Yemen. And after all the months of being in Israel, um, she sadly and I think wrongly, left impressed with Solomon, the man whose God's spirit had been poured out on. She should not have been impressed with him. She should have been impressed with God. And so as she's speaking to Solomon at the end of her time, months of being there, she said to him, Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I had heard. How blessed are your men, how blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. This is really sad. She is focused on, the, on a person, a personality, Solomon, rather than on God. The distinctive of Israel is not Solomon. It is God. And the only reason that Solomon was different was because of God's spirit. Very simple. It's not complicated. I have written above that last verse I read in 1 Kings 10, Daniel 4.17. And we just looked at that this morning in the adult Sunday school class with Jack and that verse says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
That has never changed. And Solomon was in a great privileged position where God was doing so much through him and with him and in the nation of Israel that when, when this woman was going on and on about how great he was, he was in a tremendous position to say, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on, a, on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. When Solomon began his reign, he says, I am a little child that doesn't know how to go out or how to come in. And at the end of the reign, he's letting himself be praised as though he is something significant. It was sad, and it was wrong. How does that relate to Acts chapter 2? Extraordinary things are happening through this church. And it is not because of the individuals. It is because of the Spirit of God. The distinctive of the church is simply God's Spirit indwelling people. There would be no church if God's Spirit had not come to indwell people. And so I want to look at this with, you, with us today, and we're going to start here in verse 41. And, and by the end of it, I want to give a basic definition, maybe more like more accurately, description of the church based upon these verses. Not all of what the New Testament says, just these verses. And so we begin and we're told that these people had been convicted of their sin, and they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a consequence, the Holy Spirit had come to indwell them. And so that's the basis for what the church is. A group of people who have been convicted of their sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life, and been indwelt by the Spirit of God. And then from there, there's going to be impact upon that church, upon those people. But they have been, or simply a group of people who have been convicted of their sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life, and who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. I hope that characterizes everyone that is here today. I don't know. But I, I do know this is the basis of what the church is. It is simple as that. Those who have been convicted of their sin believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and are indwelt by the Spirit of God. That is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. And Paul would say the moment that that happens in each of our lives individually, we become strangers and aliens on this earth. This earth is no longer our home. We're no longer comfortable here. We are different than what we were, radically different. That difference is manifest in verses 42 through 47. And it says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Very straightforward, simple, but loaded with significance. They were continually, is how the New American Standard puts it, but other translations probably have this a bit better, and they put steadfastly. And that in itself is a miracle. That when it comes to the Word of God, when you are born of God by the Spirit of God, there will be an immediate hunger and appreciation for the Word of God. A new orientation and a new authority that you are yielded to is created in your lives. The Word of God all of a sudden takes on a significance that it never had before. It lives to you. And it speaks to you. 
And you recognize that when you read it, that, that you are receiving something that you can get nowhere else. And it is absolutely essential to your well-being. So this steadfast devotion, before we come to Christ, often we're not steadfast in anything. We're tossed here and, here and fro, as James says. But, but when you put your faith in the one who is the solid rock, then that rock begins to characterize you, and there will be a steadfastness that he begins to bring about in your life. Steadfastness in relation to the word of God. But the first thing that happened is not actually the steadfastness to the teaching, but it's the fact that the teaching is taking place. Really, the only church I have any experience with is this church. And I don't have much opportunity to visit any other church. Um, and so I don't, you know, it's hard for me to be um, objective or to be even broad-minded because my experience really with church is so limited. I did not grow up thinking I would ever be preaching in a church or being called the pastor of a church. Um, I didn't know that I would ever be in ministry. And then when it looked like it would be ministry that the Lord had for me, I thought it'd be something like a parachurch ministry like His Hill where I spend most of my time, a teaching ministry, discipleship ministry. I, I never felt motivated to be a pastor of a church. I didn't feel gifted to do that. So it just really wasn't on my thinking. And so I, went, I was unlike a lot of guys in seminary that go through seminary, really focused on the church and what it's going to mean to lead a church, to be administrator of a church, to serve a church. I didn't think about that. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not that I didn't have any interest or care, just that's not me. And so even when I attended various churches, I wasn't thinking, how do they do this? How do they do that? Um, just, just wasn't there. So... I hear people all the time say how unique this church is. And primarily because God's word is being preached. And that shocks me and disappoints me. Because the first indication that God has created the church is that the word of God is being preached. And when the word of God is not being preached, something is wrong with the church. So that goes even before devotion, steadfast devotion to the teaching. There has to be teaching. The book needs to be opened. And it needs to be taught. I believe, book by book, verse by verse, what is God saying? And you know probably more churches than I do, but I'm telling you, I mean, there, it, it, there is at least once a month I hear people say that they do not hear God's word taught when they go to churches. And there are other exceptions, and I praise God for that, but reading this passage just renewed my heart to pray for, those, for, the, for the church of God worldwide that we would be what God has created us to be. And that is a people who are steadfastly devoted to the word of God and the word is being taught. The second thing, well, before even moving on to that, clearly they are, to put this in the negative rather than the positive, they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They are not devoted 
on the negative to the experiences that are being related here. They are not devoted to the personalities that are preaching God's word. Paul makes a big deal about not being devoted to the personalities that are handling the word in 1 Corinthians. When he says, some of you say that you are Apollos, some say that you are Cephas, some say that you are of Paul, some say that you are of Christ. What is wrong with this picture, Paul's saying? In the early church, at the very beginning, it was never about the personality, thankfully, that was handling the word. But it was about the word being taught and a steadfast devotion to it. And the second thing that characterized the church is simply fellowship. There is now a new orientation. There is truth that's being proclaimed and truth that is being adhered to is the first thing. And second, there is a love for other people. And that itself is a miracle. The proclamation of God's word is a work of the Spirit of God. And to be now focused on other people rather than self is a work of the Spirit of God. That Christ comes to live in you. And for the first time in your life, you care from the heart, selflessly, generously for other people. There's no accounting for it, except God did it. And that's what is true for these folks. You see yourself as no longer identified with the things of the world, but now, strangely, you find yourself loving and committed to identifying yourself with people that you wouldn't even like to have been around previously. That you like Christians, no matter what the world says about them. These are people that warm your heart and bless you, and you want to be a blessing to them. And they're pretty quirky, some of them. Strange lot. I'm in a, I remember one time um, using an illustration of how, you know, it's nice to look over, a, you know, I'm, I'm no agriculturist at all. I know nothing about cows and that kind of stuff. Somebody asked me one time what kind of horses I had. We had at his hill, and I said brown ones. Um, <laughs> we got a couple of white ones. We got some brown ones. I mean, I know nothing, okay? And the same thing is true with cows, even though I love eating them. I know nothing else really about them. I just, I don't know, they taste good. Um, but I know, I can appreciate looking over a pasture and all these, you know, same color, same size, you know, red cows are out there. And I remember as a boy, my, my cousin, who older cousin, like an uncle, who he had all these red Santa Gertrudis cows. And man, they were beautiful. Oh, wow, I could appreciate that. And, and, you know, you look over a field and you see all these black Angus. And I go, those are good steaks. I can appreciate that. But when you look at a field that's just a mixed lot, and they're actually called that. Larry Bowden told me that. They're just called a mixed lot. where they don't, none of them look, No two of them look the same. They just look at just a bunch of cows in a field. Well, that's the church. We are like that. We are so different from each other. And yet, by the indwelling Spirit of God, it's amazing how God brings us together. And that we have nothing in common much of the time other than Jesus. But when you have Jesus in common, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you've got everything in common. 
And if you don't have Christ in common, you have nothing in common. And we understand that as Christians, because it just doesn't matter what country you came from or what your life experience has been or what your education is or what your interests are. We have Christ in common. There is immediate unity, oneness, fellowship that the world knows nothing about, and it brings great joy. And so the two primary manifestations of a people who have been convicted of their sin, placed their faith in Christ, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, is that the word is proclaimed and steadfastly adhered to. And secondly, there's fellowship among people that are very diverse. And more than just they kind of get along, they are absolutely committed to each other, and, and, they, and, and there is a oneness of mind and heart that is not known anywhere else in the world. It is remarkable. So he says, and they kept, and, and so again, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And then the next two statements, and to breaking, it says, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, those are in apposition to the fellowship. So in other words, these are ways that the fellowship is made known. Breaking bread, which means communion that we just had, but more simply and less um, formal, just having meals together. They enjoyed each other's company. And secondly, they're praying. Praying together, praying for each other, praying for this world. They were characterized by sharing life together and praying together. Those were the two primary aspects of fellowship. All of this was radically different than what they had previously experienced even the day before. Christ comes to live in them. And everything is changing. There is truth proclaimed, truth obeyed, love for the other believers, and then as we're going to see, joy and even impact upon society, all things that should be characterizing the church, the body of Christ. So in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Sense of awe is a sense of, look what God's doing. You don't don't get a sense of awe unless it's the activity of God. It's the same sense of awe to refer back to Solomon that the people expressed when they heard what Solomon said concerning the two prostitutes arguing over the baby. And Solomon said, cut the baby in half and give half to both women. And then the one woman said, no, let the baby live. And the other woman said, no, let the baby die. And Solomon said, stop, give the baby to the one who wanted the baby to live. That's the baby's mother. And everybody said, whoa, that was the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And they felt a sense of awe because they had just seen God's activity. The early church themselves felt a sense of awe because they could sense God was doing something. This wasn't conjured up. This wasn't even prayed for. It wasn't a program to try to to install into the church, to instill into the church. It was simply what God was doing in their midst. And so as much as I talk against emotions, the students in here do that, hear me so much, they say, well, Charlie, are all emotions just bad? Should I not have any emotions? 
and I, and I, and I get kind of emotional about that. Um, I, I was with a friend last week, and he and I are about the same age, and he's going, Charlie, do you find yourself crying all the time now? And I go, I go yeah, man, I'm crying all the time. I almost started crying just telling him I'm crying all the time. And he's going, yeah. And I go, I go, he go, I go what's wrong with us? And I go, I don't know. You know we're almost crying. Emotions aren't a bad thing, and, and we need them, obviously, or God wouldn't have allowed us to experience them. Students were asking me, we had a, a chat time last semester, and, and one of the girls said, tell me why you married Patsy. What attracted you to her? And I started crying. <laughs> and it's not because it's a bad marriage, or, you know, I just, <laughs> there's no sense of buyer's remorse or anything, but I'm just... I'm just and I'm crying. I'm just, and I'm going, man. I'm getting old or something here. And but I have to tell you, two people have been asking a lot, and I appreciate it. You know, how are you and your family doing? You know, with the with the loss of the grandbabies and stuff. And and it occurred to me that as as much as we've been grieving, particularly last fall when all that was happening, I don't think I've had a fall where I have laughed more with our students than we did that fall. I mean, at times it was hard to get through class because I'm just laughing and they're laughing. I'm just going, we're not being very spiritual here. We're, you know, we obviously you're not supposed to laugh so much. But I thank the Lord for the, for the, for the gift of tears and for the gift of laughter. And, and again, this is, this is part of being a Christian, of being inhabited by the Spirit of God. It doesn't subdue us emotionally. It actually... The Spirit of God enlivens us to where we can laugh, we can cry, we can enjoy life to a degree that other people know nothing about. I mean, I've had people tell me that they had a clear point of demarcation of coming out of the world and into the faith, into, into Christ in the church, and they go, Charlie, I didn't know how to have fun until I became a Christian. I thought fun always involved alcohol. And now I come to, I hang out with Christians and there can be no alcohol and we are laughing and having fun like I never thought possible. It's the Spirit of God and it's all good. And it's not something that we have to pursue. It's just as the Spirit of God is having his way with us, he will enliven every aspect of our being. We're the same person, we have the same personality, but now we're free. And then we're free to laugh. We're free to enjoy each other. We're free to cry. And it's because of the freedom that the Spirit of God brings to us individually and as a body. So they kept feeling a sense of awe because of what God was doing among them. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. And they had all things in common and they began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing with them with all as anyone might have need. Now, the communists love those verses. And they go, there you go, you have communism in the Bible. The early church was a communist church. Nothing could be further from the truth. This was not compulsory, it was spontaneous, it was voluntary. And actually, it was also temporary. 
This did not always characterize the church, that they were always selling everything they had. Now, they were always meeting each other's needs, but this was extraordinary and exceptional what was happening here. The generosity was not, but the selling of everything that was unique to this time. But it was not compulsory. It was voluntary. And it was not everybody having exactly the same as communism says, but it was just meeting specific needs as they arose. And it wasn't that, some pe- that everybody had exactly the same, nobody had more than another. That was never the case in the early church. Now, what we do see here, generosity, and again, joy, concern for others and not just self, harmony, unity, oneness of mind, There was no program to do these things. God simply was free to express himself in these ways. And I believe that God wants to continue to express himself in these ways. But it's not going to happen by a church committee saying, okay, we need to have more generosity in this church. So let's, let's have a series of sermons on generosity. We need to have more fellowship times together. So let's all get together and we're going to make fellowship happen. Well, good luck with that. I can remember times as a kid, you know, when my dad said we're all going to be happy. (laughs) You can't legislate it. It doesn't happen that way. Um, This is what God is spontaneously doing in people who have believed and they are indwelt And now they are hungry and obedient to God's word. And they have fellowship with each other because the spirit of God has created it. It's all miraculous. It's all the activity of God. And so nobody can can package this and sell it and say, okay, we want to come to your church and show you how you can be like us. God forbid. This was God freely acting among these people to accomplish these things. So I have a few questions that come out of this. Number one, are the things that we're reading about here at the end of Acts Acts chapter 2 normative for today and for all local churches? And specifically, the steadfast devotion and proclamation of the word, fellowship, generosity, A sense of awe, growth, it says that God was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved, oneness of mind, all the things, you can pull it all apart. Are those things listed there normative for today? Should we expect God to do the same? And the answer is yes and no. Primarily, yes. When the spirit is unquenched, When the Spirit is free in each of our lives individually and corporately, I believe we can expect that these things God will manifest among us. The Word will be taught, and we will want it. We will be steadfastly devoted to it, and we will have genuine fellowship with each other, a fellowship that is expressed in oneness, unity, generosity, and there will be an impact upon society around us, that people will be coming to know the Lord, and we will be enjoying favor. 
with those who don't yet know the Lord. These things God can do and is willing to do. So that's the yes. But there are aspects of what we've just read and what is being described to us here that are not going to be repeated. For example, they were all together daily in the temple. Well, there is no temple. And we're not Jewish. So even if there were a temple, we wouldn't be even have access to the parts that they had access to, these Jewish men and women. They had an opportunity to be together daily because they were living in such close quarters already. We don't live like that. If you've been to Jerusalem, even modern Jerusalem, it's, it is a compact city. And it would not be difficult to be together daily. That is not possible today. And then I think that how thousands were saved with each of the first two sermons that were preached. But that wasn't repeated. And we have many sermons in Acts after those first two. And there were not thousands of people being saved. I don't think Paul ever had that experience. It seems to be only Peter. Peter preached his first two sermons and had several thousand people come to faith in Christ. Good for you, Peter. But if that becomes the standard of what God wants to do, then I think we're going to have a whole lot of disappointed churches. I'm certainly going to be disappointed because that's never happened in my ministry that I've preached one sermon and seen 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. I thank the Lord for the Billy Grahams that he raises up, and that happens. But it doesn't happen for every preacher. It doesn't happen in every local church. Signs and wonders, even in this passage, it's limited. It's only the apostles that were performing them. And as we get further into Acts, signs and wonders seem to dry up. They just are, are, are occurring less and less, if at all, by the time we get to the end of Acts. Favor? I believe that God gives favor. But he doesn't always give favor. We're told concerning Jesus in Luke 2.52 that he that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. But Jesus did not always have favor with men. He did it the early part of his life, before his public ministry. But once the public ministry began, people started hating him. And by the end, so we know, they crucified him. They hated him so much. So Jesus did not always enjoy favor. And there will be times in our life when we do not have the favor of society around us. There have been many, many years, many generations in this country where Christians had great favor. Those days seem to have come to an end. Things are changing. The Jews in Jerusalem had favor. These brand new believers had favor at this time. In a very short period of time, they're not going to have that favor any longer. And they're going to be persecuted and scattered to the four corners of the earth. So not everything in this passage should be considered as normative for today. Though much of it is. That we should have an expectation that as the Spirit is free to work in the lives of believers, that we will have a steadfast devotion to God's Word, and that we will have tremendous fellowship with each other. Those two things, I believe, are normative for today. No question. So we can evaluate whether or not the Spirit is working among us
by principally those two things. The proclamation and adherence to the word of God, number one. And number two, fellowship with the body of Christ. But we need to understand that though those are the two primary things that indicate a a church, a body that is responding to the Spirit of God. The goal for us as a body is not those things. Those are the consequence of the Spirit having His way. And they should not, the consequence shouldn't be the goal. But the goal should be the cause. And the cause of everything good is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal, the ambition for the Christian is Christ himself. Paul said in Philippians 3 that he wanted to lay hold of him. In Colossians, we're told to put him on. In Romans, we're told to yield to him, to present ourselves to him. In Hebrews, we're told to fix our eyes on him. I think it's pretty clear from all of that that the goal of the Christian life is not the Acts 2 experience. But the goal of the Christian life is simply Christ. Devotion to him, yieldedness to him, and him alone. And as we are yielded to Christ the head, who holds all things together and who is the creator of the church, then he is free to manifest himself in us in these ways. A second question is, do these things that we're reading about which characterize the church, do they characterize you and me? So before we criticize the church, in other words, of whether or not these things are present, we need to look in the mirror. Are they present in me? Are they present in you? How can I expect that there'll be a steadfast devotion to the Word of God if I'm not steadfastly devoted to the Word of God? How can I expect that there's going to be good and rich and fulfilling fellowship within the church if I myself don't care about being with the body of Christ. And so before I point the finger at the church and look and say it falls short, I believe the Lord would have us to start by looking in the mirror. Because a good church is composed of individual members who are themselves either responding to the Spirit of God or not. And a good fellowship A spirit-filled fellowship is one where each member is responding to the Spirit of God. Is there a sense of awe in my life? Is there a steadfast devotion to the Word of God? And I'm thankful that you don't have to be in ministry, you don't have to be a pastor for that to be true. All of these people had a sense of awe. All of these people had a steadfast devotion to the Word of God. Major Ian Thomas had a Bible that was coming apart. He'd never been to Bible school, never been to seminary. Now, part of the reason why it came apart, I mean, it was just the pages were just brown. There were no white pages in his Bible. The major prophets in my Bible are still white pages. They were all brown pages. 
Well, part of the reason was because he had his index finger blown off, half of it. And to turn the pages, because that finger didn't work so well, he licked it. And so he was always spitting on his Bible. <laughs> so you spit on your Bible for 40 years, it's all going to be brown. But the main reason it was brown and tattered and worn is because he was steadfastly devoted to the Word of God. Different people have said, if you've got a Bible that's fallen apart, then you've got a life that's not fallen apart. And that doesn't become a measure of spirituality. It may just be your Bible's fallen apart, like mine, because I've abused it and I've had it for a long time. And, I, and I've had to recover it because I bend it in the wrong places and stuff, and it's not because I've, you know, not because I've torn it apart reading it necessarily. But I will say this again. My, all of my point is, it's not about going to seminary or Bible college and getting a formal Bible education. If you know how to read and you own a Bible, you can have steadfast devotion to the Word of God. And it's something the Spirit of God wants to do in each of us. And if you don't have that, something is not right. So ask the Lord. It's not my job to try and fix that in anybody or even in myself. It's just to come back to the Lord and say, God, I'm honestly, if I'm honest here, I don't have the same love for your word that I used to have. That's not right. One of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And a hunger for God's word is a sign of being alive and well. And if we as Christians have lost that hunger for God's word, there's a sickness. We are not well spiritually. Oneness of mind with other believers? Or are we just unnecessarily contentious and divisive? Do we look for common ground? Or are always just aware of the reasons why we could divide? Do I have a generous spirit with all that God's given me? Time, money, possessions, do I have a generous spirit? Do I have a heart of praise? Is my life having an impact and influence upon society? See, there's nothing here that describes the church that shouldn't describe me and you individually. So before we're too quick to curse the church, make sure that these things are true in your own life. Now, a third question, and, and I'm putting this in the form of two questions. When there is no indication of these things in an individual's life, does that mean that they are not saved? And that's one of the most common questions I get asked now, everywhere I go. What do you do with the person who professes faith in Christ but doesn't show any indication of change. Well, if there's never been any indication whatsoever of change from the very beginning, then I would agree. <laughs> Probably not saved. But I don't know. 
if that person received Christ when they were 10 years old, and now you're talking about somebody that's 30 years old, and they're not showing any indication of being saved, I can't look at the heart. And I don't know, maybe they are truly convicted of their sin. Miserable. Maybe they know in their spirit they belong to God, but they have quenched the spirit, and they have, and they have hardened their hearts toward God. These are things that a Christian can do. So maybe the better question, or a question that would help me answer the first question, if none of these things are true, if there is no evident change in a person's life, are they not saved? Here's a follow-up question. When there is no biblical teaching, when there is no steadfastness to the word, when there is no fellowship with other believers, which is indicated by generosity and prayer, is there no church? Now, see, when I ask that question, because honestly, there are a lot of churches where I would not question the fact that they are saved people and this is genuinely a church. But they are not devoted to the teaching of God's word. At least not normally. And they are not fellowshipping together with love and joy and oneness and generosity. And they're not making an impact upon society. That seemed to characterize quite a few of the churches of Revelation. Where Jesus is saying, I have these things against you. So I think that a church can be a church and not be functioning as a church. It can be functioning as just any other organization. But the people are saved. The pastor is saved. But they've forgotten that it is God's work. This is God's body, Christ's body. And they are depending upon worldly means to accomplish spiritual ends. And the Spirit of God is not working because man is at work. And as A.W. Tozer said, there's very many churches that 90% of what they are doing would continue to go on if the Spirit of God were withdrawn. Because so very little of what happens in most churches is spirit-inspired. But they're still a church. They're a fleshly, carnal church. So if a church can be fleshly and carnal, I believe Christians can be fleshly and carnal. It's not what should happen. It grieves the Spirit of God. He is being quenched. God wants to manifest Himself in our lives in the ways that he's described in this chapter. So in conclusion, I would point us to two things. One is Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm not going to read that whole chapter there. But that is a chapter of clear exhortation, one after the other, to the local church. Focuses on unity at the beginning of the chapter. Maintain the unity. Preserve the unity. And throughout the chapter, it talks about speaking the truth to one another in love. It talks about putting on Christ. It talks about rejoicing together, fellowshipping together. So clearly, the church needs to be exhorted to these things. But the manifestation of them is not going to come about just because we're exhorting it, but because we're coming back to Jesus personally. And then finally, so as I look at this paragraph and what's being depicted of the church, I think we can say this about the church. 
It is a group of people who have been convicted of their sin, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life, who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who proclaim and adhere steadfastly to the Word of God, who fellowship with each other in love, joy, and prayer, and who are making an impact upon the world. These are the things that God wants to characterize His church. To make that a little shorter list, truth, love, joy, and an impact upon the world. And that excites me. We are unique, folks. There is nothing else like the church on this planet. We are the body of Christ, and God has knit us together. The world's never going to appreciate this, but we can and we should. And not to underestimate or devalue the proclamation of God's word and fellowship with other believers. This is God at work in this world. We all want to see God at work. It's as simple as this. The proclamation of his word and believers fellowshipping in the name of Jesus. And that is the activity of God. And it's a miracle. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you for your word, for your life, for your work, that you've taken such a mixed lot to put together the body of Christ and make us one. I thank you for the authority of your word. I pray that we would, would continue, God, to submit to it as unto you. That we would love you and love your word. And that we would be steadfastly devoted, God, to all that you've revealed to us through it. And I thank you, God, for the love that you've poured out in our hearts, not only for you, but for each other. And I pray that we would not grieve your spirit in expressing and communicating, God, that love for you and for each other. And that our fellowship would be increasingly rich and pure and sincere and filled with joy and generosity. And God, we pray that you would use us in this world to impact society, to see many come to faith in Christ, and that we would live, God, as the salt and light that you've made us to be. In Christ's name, amen.